the waste at San Onofre is the symptom of a greater problem. The problem is that we lack a cohesive, comprehensive strategy to deal with spent nuclear fuel across the entire United States. San Onofre's lethal waste is stored in thin metal canisters placed in a wet, salty environment. These canisters were engineered not for long-term storage in any location, let alone a marine environment 100 feet from a rising ocean. You are not only dealing with what may happen with the canisters, but we're also looking at a history of San Onofre releasing, uh, say, carbon-14, which it did, tritium, which it did. These are all radionuclides that have very long hazardous lives. And so when you look at hazardous lives of tritium, you know, you're dealing with 120 years to 240 years. You are not only dealing with what may happen from the canisters, you are still having a legacy of exposures from what happened from the releases before San Onofre shut down in 2013. The long overdue big one is something that we've been warned about for many decades now. When it does, the devastating effect will far exceed that of the ongoing Fukushima disaster simply because of San Onofre's proximity to a very dense population. So much other infrastructure would also be destroyed that nuclear waste at San Onofre could only be protected by addressing this issue before the big one hits. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Samuel Lawrence Foundation's First Fridays series. You're going to hear leading experts from industry and academia at the forefront of research and activism, so you can make the best choices for the future. Please help us get the word out on these critical issues by subscribing and sharing. We value all your feedback in the form of reviews. And if you find this valuable, please help us get the word out and leave us a five-star rating. This podcast is brought to you by the Samuel Lawrence Foundation, dedicated to community engagement and improving access to science, education, and the arts. Learn more at www.samuellawrencefoundation.org. Is there a potential Fukushima-like disaster hiding in plain sight in Southern California? There are 16,000 tons of spent nuclear fuel stored in 50 canisters just 100 feet from the Pacific Ocean at the decommissioned San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant near Camp Pendleton Marine Base, just four miles south of San Clemente, in an earthquake zone. Eight million people live within 50 miles of the site. What are the risks? What can be done to move the deadly waste to a safer place? What if there's a leak? How did this happen? When will there be a permanent storage site for the nation's nuclear waste? In this first Friday's episode, an esteemed panel provides an in-depth briefing on the situation in San Onofre, the failures that led to the current situation, the risks, and what must be done. This is a critical issue to everyone in Southern California that resonates with similar problems of nuclear waste around the world. My name is Bart Ziegler, and I'm the president of the Samuel Arts Foundation. Our foundation advances impactful programs at the intersection of science, arts, and education, looking for solutions to our planet's greatest challenges, from nuclear safety to climate change. And right at the forefront of our mission is working to keep Southern California safe from the public health hazards of nuclear waste. So that's why today we'll be looking at the very real threat posed by the decommissioned nuclear power plant at San Onofre. Before we get started, it is a privilege and my honor to welcome Congressman Mike Levin to offer opening remarks. Congressman. Well, thank you so much for having me, Bart. It's great to be with you, and uh, I'm grateful to the Samuel Lawrence Foundation for uh, all you do. Uh, I also want to extend a very special thank you to uh, my dear friends, uh, Admiral Len Herring uh, and Greg Yasko. Uh, who uh, co-chaired the Songs Task Force that uh, I established shortly after taking office in 2019. Uh, they have just had uh, such great advice and expertise, and, and I'm excited that you'll be hearing from them uh, in a little bit. Uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to just uh, briefly speak with you, uh, and I'm so glad that Bart uh, brought up the word solutions, because for me, it's all about uh, solutions about uh, you know how we're going to ha safely handle the spent fuel at San Onofre and and uh, ultimately uh, what advocacy will be necessary to make that happen. I think you know there are 1,600 tons of spent fuel at Songs. Uh, the fuel sits just 100 feet from the Pacific Ocean and an active fault line and near Camp Pendleton near a very important uh, marine base. 
also near a very heavily populated areas in San Diego and Los Angeles and Orange County. And the current uh, situation, the status quo is neither safe nor effective in the long term uh, for our spent nuclear fuel. Since I entered Congress in 2019, I made it a top priority to find a permanent home for our waste at San Onofre. As part of that work, I formed a bipartisan Congressional Spent Nuclear Fuel Solutions Caucus uh, that uh, works together to address the challenges associated with commercial spent fuel stored at sites across the country. As I've said, ad nauseum, the waste at San Onofre is the symptom of a greater problem. The problem is that we lack a cohesive, comprehensive strategy to deal with spent nuclear fuel across the entire United States. I also convened the Songs Task Force. I mentioned that Len and uh, Greg are the co-chairs. And the Songs Task Force developed policy recommendations on the issues facing Songs and our greater community. Since their report came out, I've been introducing federal legislation to address spent fuel uh, in accordance with the report's recommendations. The, the report had uh, something like 30 recommendations, of which eight had a direct federal nexus. And we've tried to uh, tailor the legislation in our policy strategy at the federal level directly uh, in line with the recommendations from the task force. Uh, one of those bills is called the Spent, Nucle Spent Nuclear Fuel Prioritization Act. That bill would prioritize the removal of spent nuclear fuel with the areas of the highest uh, seismic risk, the highest national security concerns, and the highest population density. We have over 9 million people living within 50 miles of San Onofre. Uh, we know it's directly uh, adjacent to Camp Pendleton, one of the most important bases in the United States for the readiness and preparation of our military. And we know that uh, California experiences uh, seismic risks, and particularly uh, right around that plant, there are uh, both active and inactive faults. So the bill, our Spent Fuel Prioritization Act, would make San Onofre uh, one of the highest priority sites in the nation for spent nuclear fuel removal. It's a bipartisan bill uh, led by uh, uh, Daryl Issa and myself. Additionally, I've introduced legislation to direct the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to create an Office of Public Engagement and Participation. It's so important to have stakeholder engagement. It's important the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, isn't just a top-down organization, uh, but really uh, empowers people to, to be involved. I, I think top-down thinking is a big problem, uh, and it's how we got into this mess that we're in with spent nuclear fuel. And uh, top-down thinking, whether it's at the NRC or, or elsewhere, is a big challenge. Uh, just this week, I introduced something called the 100-Year Canister Life Act. Current NRC regulations set the lifespan requirement of nuclear waste canisters at 40 years, 40 years. I don't believe that's enough. This bill would ensure canisters can safely store spent nuclear fuel for much longer 100 years until we find a longer-term solution. It's critical that the best technology is used at San Onofre in order to keep our communities as safe as possible. And I'm going to be, be pushing very hard for this bill to become law. It's not going to happen overnight, but we've got to keep at it. The process to chart a path forward for, for a safe solution for our spent nuclear fuel will be just that, a process. And a key part of that process is recognizing the situation that we're in today with nuclear waste scattered at around 75 sites across the country and how we got here and, and how it's not sustainable. We're in this situation because the federal government tried to establish a long-term repository for the waste at Yucca Mountain in Nevada without getting the permission or obtaining the consent of the state and all the affected localities and tribes. That was a recipe for failure. And it's why all the fuel is still sitting at San Onofre today. Our Songs Task Force report, which I'm proud that the Samuel Lawrence Foundation was a critical partner in, acknowledged this by finding that, and I quote, consent-based siting, keyword consent, with meaningful partnerships and open communication among federal, state, local, and tribal leaders is a critical step forward towards establishing a permanent repository. The wow, that's I see. Oh, oh uh, uh, Congressman, I thought you were, we're really limited with time. Okay. So, I'm almost done, Bart. I promise you. The report you. went on to recommend, and I quote, Congress should consider federal legislation that considers a framework to achieve consent for future storage and disposal sites, and quote, 
Congress should work towards a consent-based final disposal site. So with these recommendations in mind, I fought to fund the Department of Energy's consent-based siting program. So far, I've delivered $93 million for that program. With that funding, DOE has established consortia across the country made up of universities and nonprofits that are engaging with communities about consent as we speak. This is the most promising solution so far for the spent fuel at San Onofre, and it is driven by communities themselves. And it's based on the task force report. It goes hand in hand with the other work being discussed today. The alternative is the top-down process that got into the mess we're in. It's unfair to communities, especially those that have been historically under-resourced and disadvantaged. So I'm grateful for your partnership, BART, and ensuring we come up with the safest, most responsible solutions possible. I'm proud of the steps we've taken so far. I look forward to continuing to work with you to move the spent fuel away from the beach at San Onofre. I thank you for your efforts on this critical issue and for giving me the opportunity to run a minute or two long and to speak with you at this very important event. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Congressman, for taking your time. Uh, we truly appreciate your time. Uh, and now I'd like to introduce our moderator today, uh, Samuel Arts Foundation Senior Advisor, Catherine Brinton, who's an ACLU Know Your Rights Ambassador, an advocate for human rights, children at risk, and environmental justice. Catherine, I give you the microphone. Thank you. Thanks, Bart, and so happy to be here. Welcome to everyone joining us today. Those watching on Zoom, please use the Q&A or chat box to submit your questions. If you're watching live on YouTube or LinkedIn, send an email to admin at samuellawrencefoundation.org. Let's begin with some essential background on the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. Primarily owned and operated by Southern California Edison, Songs commenced operations in 1968 and was decommissioned in 2013. Almost a half century of spent fuel generated by the plant, 3.6 million pounds of high-level radioactive waste remains on site. About 60 miles south of LA, Songs straddles San Diego and Orange counties and is surrounded to the east by Camp Pendleton. It's on a stretch of gorgeous, biodiverse Pacific coastline. This is a very unlikely place for a nuclear waste dump. Um, it's also a dangerous one. San Onofre's lethal waste is stored in thin metal canisters placed in a wet, salty environment. These canisters were engineered not for long-term storage in any location, let alone a marine environment 100 feet from a rising ocean. Experts tell us that these canisters, which are at or near their expiration dates, have been scratched and gouged, increasing their vulnerability to corrosion and cracking. Rising sea levels and the heavy surf of storms exacerbate the problem. Moreover, there are other risk factors specific to San Onofre's location, including its close, pro close proximity to major transportation corridors and population centers, inordinate heat from nearby wildfires, earthquakes, and resulting tsunamis. The Samuel Lawrence Foundation and San Clemente Green are two organizations of many that believe the method of storing toxic waste um, at San Onofre is woefully inadequate. Um, it poses an environmental risk and it poses health risks. However, that's not a perspective shared by Southern California Edison. Um, it's important for us to state that, and it's incumbent on us to invite them and any other agencies to a follow-up webinar, and Bart gives us his word, we will do our best to make this happen. As Congressman Levin reminds us, public discourse is not only fair and healthy, it's dialogue we need to find solutions. So let's warmly welcome our panelists, who so generously agreed to share their time and wisdom with us. We're very honored to introduce Rear Admiral Len Herring, Sr., retired U.S. Naval officer. Dr. Gregory Jasko, former chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Cindy Fokers, radiation and health hazard specialist with Beyond Nuclear. And Gary Hedrick, founder and president of San Clemente Green. Our first question is for Admiral Herring. 
Admiral, it is an honor to have you join us, and we thank you for your tremendous service. As a Naval officer, are you there, Admiral? I am. Great. Thank you for joining us. As a Naval officer, you led important conservation efforts and continue to do so. When we met, you were executive director of I Love a Clean San Diego, a Navy man after our own hearts. So I have to ask, Admiral, how did 3.6 million pounds of such toxic waste get stranded next to Pendleton on our beach? Uh, Trestles is nearby, the famous surfing spot that the Beach Boys sang about. Great question. Um, but I think that uh, Congressman Levin actually uh, covered the reasons why. And I think that the reason is that, they, that nationally we have failed to do the right things um, to make absolutely certain that the waste generated by these nuclear power plants are uh, taken care of properly. Um, it's stuck at Pendleton because there is no repository, uh, long-term repository for the waste um, across the entire country. So until we find a solution, um, that waste will have to sit there. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we're now dealing with um, the what I believe is inadequate storage uh, requirements that are that now face uh, songs in the local environment. So you were in charge of safety and security in the Navy. Um, you believe that that the waste is not being stored um, safely. Can you elaborate a little bit for us? Sure, and I. I, I encourage everyone who's listening to get a copy of our report um, and, and read it thoroughly and understand um, what it is that we found um, during that time frame. Um, everything that we um, identified in that report um, brings question and concern um, to those of us who on a regular basis um, manage and uh, sustain a system where we evaluate risk um, and address that risk so that we minimize that risk. Um, in the case of uh, songs and the things that we found out, um, I don't believe um, it was done properly. Um, and I still believe to this date, if you look at the issues that many have brought up and asked for uh, consideration, um, have yet to be addressed properly. Um, and unfortunately, when they are addressed or they are found to be an issue or risk, um, they're waived. Um, they're waived through the regulatory commission or they're waived through a process that allows um, the operator to continue to operate as they have been in the past. And for me, that's the most concerning part. A regulation is not something um, that individuals should be allowed to just waive and proceed. Um, a regulation in the Navy for sense. Um, if you needed a waiver, that waiver was for a short period of time until such time as you were able to comply with the regulation. And I would say it's, it's exactly the same thing with the FAA. Unfortunately, that's not the same case uh, that we've seen with the NRC. Um, and that these operators are operating with a significant number of waivers. Um, and it puts things at risk. You mentioned the FAA. Um, this is another example of the regulators reporting to the industry um, that they're supposed to be regulating instead of vice versa? Yeah, and I, I will tell you again, uh, read the report. Um, the report clearly shows um, how industry is telling the NRC um, how they want things done. Um, and when a regulation is found to be an obstruction, they file for a waiver and they receive same. Um, and I would tell you that, you know, the perfect example that we uh, would see is the, the incident that just occurred with the Boeing. Um, and, you know, we find out that uh, Boeing operators made failure. But, in fact, the regulators um, grounded the aircraft until the investigation was totally complete and the uh, and situation rectified. Um, there was no waiver provided. There was no issuance. There may be fines yet, yet and still. Um, but in this situation, we find that, that it's happening all the time. Um, and the, the, the number of waivers that are being provided by the NRC to the operators is incredibly, and I'm going to say not um, minor, but significant. 
um, there is there are phenomenal numbers of waivers that are being um, authorized, um, and not until the regulation is secured, but to bypass the regulation. Um, I'd like to bring your attention to a 2019 report. Um, at that time, our Department of Energy commissioned a gap analysis, and the findings assigned a number one top priority um, to data gathering on stress corrosion cracking due to atmospheric corrosion of welded canisters. So here's a report the feds paid for. They published it. Um, the number one priority was even... Um, out there for everybody to read in red font. And they've had five years. I'm wondering if anything's been done on this. To the best of our knowledge, no. Um, and even though they will tell you that they've used devices that have allowed them to inspect the same, um, what we have determined is that they are not OSHA um, or AMCH approved processes. So we're, we're not we're not exactly not OSHA. I'm sorry, skip there. Um, but the the regulatory process that allows for um, standards to be secured in industry is not being applied. The devices that they use to make the inspection are not compliant with those requirements. And you think this is that at the industry's request? No, I don't think anything else has been done. Okay. And they've, they've admitted it um, in public, but we've heard nothing more. We'll be hearing soon from Cindy Fokers, who will brief us on the hazards of radiation exposure. But Admiral, approximately 70,000 Marines um, and others uh, live and work at Camp Pendleton. Uh, some of these Marines have young children. And from the waste containers, um, there's an elementary school that's less than three miles away as the crow flies. Um, does the Navy share our concerns? I mean, does does Brigadier General Woodworth have this on his radar? Do you know? Well, I won't speak for the general. Um, I've not spoken to him about this particular issue, but I do know that um, the Secretariat, the Navy Secretariat, um, does have this on their radar. Um, it is an issue that um, the federal agencies deal with. Um, if, as you know, this particular piece of land was done through um, congressional. The Navy, just so that you understand, the Navy does not own the property. The Department of the Navy does, which is the civilian side of the organization. They are the ones who are responsible. Those, the, they are the ones who are complying with the congressional uh, mandate. And they are the ones who, when time comes, um, will have to deal with how, if and how, um, they proceed with this issue. Um, are they concerned? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people there who are concerned and understand the, the significance of it. Um, are they going to be the persons who step out and uh, vocalize? Um, unfortunately, I don't believe that's the case. Um, is, is there anything hopeful here, would you say, Admiral? Well, I think that, um, you know, one, these type of, of conversations are helpful. Um, the report is, and some of the things that Congressman Levin have pointed out um, are all directed in the right place. Um, we need to figure out what to do. We need to understand. We need to have a better conversation. Um, we need to have a more open conversation with the NRC. Um, so that the questions and concerns of those individuals who are in the immediate um, are either satisfied or, or the solutions provided and the situation rectified. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, if we just sit back and let them do what they want to do, um, we, we're, we're going to regret it. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of people who say that, you know, some of it is telltale, but in the world of, of nuclear, um, the risk factor that we use in the Navy is if there was a risk at all, any percentage whatsoever, you did everything that you possibly could to abate it or you stopped it. Um, and that is not the case um, under the current 
uh, conditions. Um, they will tell you that the risk is minimal, or it's not, or it is, or whatever. Songs is located in a very uh, difficult location. Um, it was known in the early 1900s as uh, Earthquake Bay. Um, we know that there are many faults. We've seen the effects of sea level rise. Um, and the information that have been provided um, is, in fact, for most individuals who have asked the questions, insignificant or in uh, or not insufficient um, to really answer the questions and make people comfortable that they know what they're doing or that they have the conditions or the information or the materials ready to respond should there be an incident. And what they have provided is, from my perspective, um, less than satisfactory on a, on a large scale. Thank you, Admiral. We truly appreciate your time and for sharing um, your thoughts and, and, and your experience with us. Um, we'd like to move on now, thank you, to Dr. Yasko. Doctor, you're a theoretical particle physicist, a Princeton lecturer, world-renowned expert on energy policy and politics. You're also former chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Your insights are highly val valued, and thank you once again for joining us. Um, I wanted to mention also, and I don't know, do we have um, an image of this, Paul? This is a book you wrote, um, Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator, which, according to the book jacket, is an account of how the nuclear industry maintains its market position by, quote, hoodwinking Congress and co-opting the regulators. This is written by a politician, by the way. So, Dr. Rasco, can you speak to the scope of the nuclear power industry in dollar terms? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's an extremely um, large industry, tens of billions of dollars, if not larger depending on how you want to define it. But more importantly, it, you know, it involves some of the most powerful power companies in, in the country. And they're, they're companies that have tremendous influence, not just at the federal level, but also at the state level, where in many ways they, they exercise almost uh, unfettered power over state regulators and state legislatures and governors. So solutions to this problem sounds like they're going to have to come from the top down? Well, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, I don't think the top is uh, interested in solving some of these problems. I think, as Congressman Levin said, part of the challenge is the need to really mobilize communities and get communities engaged in dealing with spent fuel issues, which is, I think, why this particular briefing is so important and the work that the Samuel Lawrence Foundation has done and others, Len and, and others and Gary, all the people that are here on this webinar are committed, I think, to working in the community. To, to address these questions and these issues, because I think as it is right now, the industry has very little incentive to, to make decisions that are in the best interest of the communities and, and they don't have the political infrastructure pushing back on them in, in really in, in a strong way. Um, do you care to comment at all on the NRC, the agency you once chaired? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd, I'd love to talk about it. I think, uh, unfortunately, right now, it, it, I'm very concerned because the agency, you know, while it has its faults, I, I, I believe that there are a lot of very good people at the agency who work to, to make good decisions. But what I've found through my experience is that the, the top of the agency uh, is really dominated by a perspective that views the agency's job as perpetuating the industry. Uh, I don't necessarily think the answer should be that the agency's job is to end the industry. But I think its job is, is to focus on public health and safety. And I think um, not only has the, the the leadership of the commission, namely the five presidentially appointed or currently four presidentially appointed commissioners, really been focused on the, this idea of the agency's job is to help the industry. Um, right now, Congress is looking at legislation that would codify that even more aggressively than, than I think the agency is currently acting. So it is, unfortunately, I think a very dangerous time um, for for the agency and for the pressure that exists and is exerted on the agency to um, not be an impediment uh, to nuclear power, even if that is in, in the best interest of safety. 
Um, I'd like to talk about the canisters a bit, if we could. Um, um, are these canisters routinely inspected? Um, is there a way of monitoring their emissions? So the, the canisters are inspected periodically. I think it's the best way to, to say that. Uh, there, there is passive monitoring around the sites to identify and, and um, monitor radiation, but they, they are uh, essentially closed, sealed um, structures. So you really cannot inspect inside the canisters. Uh, and there are, there are ways to do inspections on the outside of the canisters uh, so you can glean some information, but you know, it's a really, in, in many ways, intended to be a passive system that's expected to work well until things fail. Uh, so there, there's, it's, it's difficult to have early identification of problems and, and really aggressive inspections because of the nature of, of, the, of the canisters. Do, do other countries do a better job at this than we do? You know, there are other countries that approach it different. I, you know, I don't know that you can say they're better or, or worse in, in some regards, but um, certainly there are countries that uh, that uh, have different types of storage configurations and different types of storage systems. Uh, a facility actually I visited in Switzerland. Uh, there, they have a consolidated area where they put a lot of their uh, storage, uh, their dry gas, their spent fuel storage in a, in a consolidated facility. Um, that facility has the ability to inspect and uh, and potentially repackage canisters if necessary. That's currently not a system that we have in this country. So in, in that sense, it's, it's certainly a better approach. Um, the the overall canisters are, they are larger, thicker canisters than the canisters, for instance, that are at San Onofre. Uh, so in that sense, I think it has some advantages. Um, is I guess part of the problem is that these canisters were intended to be temporary storage, correct? So maybe you know under engineering was was a result of that. Yeah, I mean I, the, the whole design philosophy behind these canisters is that they were there essentially to be a temporary storage until the fuel would be moved to a permanent repository. That is now an open ended um, time frame. So these temporary canisters are now essentially permanent canisters for all intents and purposes and but they're only licensed for a finite period of time 40 years uh and it's largely expected that in almost all parts of the country where there are canisters the canisters will have to last longer than 40 years so there's just a lot of hand waving about both from the agency and from the industry about how you address that question i think many people assume that you will through analysis or through actual use of the canisters to be able to establish that they can last longer than 40 years. Uh, but at some point, whatever that time frame is, that they will eventually no longer be able to meet their safety requirements, their safety um, standards, and, and something will have to be done to, to repackage and, 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 and remove the fuel and put it in new canisters, which is why I think Congressman Levin's 100-year licensing uh, for canisters is such an important piece of legislation because it it really tackles that issue head on. And while 100 years may not even be sufficient in some cases, at least it, it's more realistic about the time frame that these canisters are likely to have to um, perform their function. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Yasko, for being with us today. We thank you for, thank you. for yeah, we thank you so much for, for coming forward and, and speaking to us. Sure. Um, okay, Ms. Fokers. Um, you're a radiation and health hazard specialist at the nonprofit Beyond Nuclear, which advocates for a world free from nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. As an expert in health hazards, what can you tell us about the threats posed by radiation and nuclear waste? So thank you so much for inviting me today. Um, I would take a step back to answer your question, and I thank you for that. Um, to look at sort of broad strokes, what exposure to radiation actually means. So radiation can interact with our bodies either from a source outside of our bodies, or if we inhale or ingest radionuclides into our system, we can be irradiated from within. 
It causes radiation, a disproportionately greater and sometimes unpredictable harm to females, children, and pregnancy specifically. We've got data that show around nuclear facilities increases in childhood leukemias from deposition, light deposition from Chernobyl, um, impaired neural development among children, which leads to behavioral problems and underperformance in school, uh, from work that Mary Olson has um elucidated and basically dug out of the of the research, we see that children are about seven times more susceptible to radiation damage than the adult male um, that our current radiation exposure standards are based on. So this graphic is a select list. It's not all radiation, radionuclides of concern, but it's a select list and where they go in the pregnant body. So different isotopes and kinds of radiation are released at different points in the nuclear power cycle. So uranium mining will release um, different set of isotopes, mostly compared to decommissioning a nuclear reactor, which will release a different set yet again from maybe what's in waste canisters. And then, of course, catastrophic releases from meltdowns will release um, another sort of panoply of isotopes. And some isotopes cross over, but some of the isotopes are sort of novel, uh, depending on where, which, which part of the cycle they're released from. So if we look at San Onofre waste in the canisters, it's my understanding that the canisters are passively cooled and air-cooled. One of the isotopes of concern that I would raise as a flag, and I don't know if this is happening or not, but I think somebody needs to check, air-cooled casks can be creating carbon-14 in the air around the casks. A carbon-14 is significant because, of course, it's radioactive carbon, carbon being a basic building block of the human body. Um, it collects in fetal tissue, or it can, to two times the amount that it can collect in maternal tissue. So there's a higher concentration, which makes sense because of a fetus is building a human body. Um, and so I, I don't know if they're monitoring around the canisters for carbon-14 formation, but I think that that's something that they need to look at. And that's before the canisters would, would be breached. If you're looking at um, some sort of a meltdown or a criticality event that may breach the canisters or releasing radioisotopes from these canisters, um, then I would add to those uh, strontium-90, cesium-137, and krypton-85, Krypton-85 being fat-loving and healthy females of all ages contain more fat than healthy males. Um, so that would mean that they would potentially in their bodies be taking in more Krypton-85. Strontium-90 goes to bone, more so in women than in men. In the ovaries of women, it collects more substantially from zero to zero year to 20 years. Uh, and then cesium-137, which is an isotope of concern as well that mimics potassium in our bodies and can cause heart trouble in children. So all of these isotopes that I just mentioned have one thing in common, and they collect in harm more or hang around longer in female children or developing pregnancies. Are, are these isotopes, are they airborne? Are they ingested through what we eat and drink? So... Yes, and yes, and it depends. Um, sometimes after you have a catastrophe like Fukushima, it will settle on the ground. It might end up in tea farms, for instance, or in the fish locally. Um, some of these isotopes can be very hard to detect in foodstuffs, um, and you could in, you could ingest them that way. Children playing in soil that's, con that are, that's contaminated could inhale radionuclides that way. Um, they, they can be, they're released to air and water. And so we're not only, where you are, not only dealing with what may happen with the canisters, but we're also looking at a history of San Onofre releasing uh, say carbon-14, which it did, tritium, which it did. These are all radionuclides that have very long hazardous lives. I don't go by half-life because half-life isn't necessarily what we need to look at when we're looking at the biological impact. We need to look at hazardous life. How long is it going to be hazardous for biological entities in the environment? And so when you look at hazardous lives of tritium, you know, you're dealing with 120 years to 240 years, depending. So 
you are not only dealing with what may happen from the canisters, you are still having a legacy of exposures from what happened from the releases before San Onofre shut down in 2013 permanently. Then there's the decommissioning where they will open it up and release a whole bunch of radionuclides from the core. And if you weren't measuring that, then you don't really know what the radiological profile is. Um, so you can inhale or ingest. It depends on weather patterns, which way the wind blows, which way the water flows. Uh, if your food is grown in contaminated soil, um, then you have to worry about, are you ingesting or inhaling it? Are you ingesting it? If the wind blows and carries the radionuclides toward you or your home, uh, you have to worry about, are you breathing it in? And is it settling on the ground? And are you growing your own vegetables? There are a lot of complicated questions, but the fact is we can't begin to answer any of those unless there's decent monitoring. I wanna thank you so much, Ms. Fokers, for being with us today. Um, we felt just uh, very fortunate um, that you were uh, willing to talk with us, and we really appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Mr. Hedrick. You and your wife, Lori, founded San Clemente Green, which led the grassroots effort to shut down songs. You work tirelessly still to promote a sustainable future for our region, including serving on Representative Levin's Congressional Task Force on Nuclear Waste. So you've been at this a long time, since 2007. Um, what concerns you most about the stored nuclear waste at San Onofre? Well, I think we've seen today that there's a race against time, basically. Nuclear waste was never planned to be stored at San Onofre, and the Department of Energy took on that responsibility, but has been unable to fulfill that promise since 1986. So in order for the plant to continue producing electricity, highly radioactive fuel assemblies had to be offloaded from the reactors and replaced with new ones. Since temporary storage was the presumption, Edison selected cheaper thin metal canisters that were far less robust than the thick casks being used in most other countries that had nuclear power. It was discovered that the permanent repository being built at Yucca Mountain had a fatal flaw. Water was penetrating the site deep below the desert, making it unsuitable for storing nuclear waste for many thousands of years. Now it requires a new plan to solve the long-term storage issues, but time is running out for the thin casters that were only intended for containing the waste for up to 20 years. Under the circumstances, we are now being told that they're probably good for 60 to 100 years. Pretty convenient. There are basically only two questions that we're concerned about. How long will the thin canisters last, and what are we going to do when they fail? Since there is no viable plan now, other than trying to entice less fortunate communities to accept these ticking time bombs, a new and reliable plan must be top priority. We're currently exploring what legislative powers of the state of California can apply to develop a more acceptable and realistic plan. Well, we're here in Southern California. No surprise, there's multiple fault lines around San Onofre. Um, on the screen, Paul, can we get an image of that map? <clears throat> there's a vintage map of the coastline where the plant is located. And... Um, as was said, I believe, by uh, Admiral Herring, um, it's called Earthquake Bay, the, the stretch of coastline in which Songs is nestled. The waters beyond that was called Earthquake Bay. So there's a reason for that. And let me read to you what Kate Brown, professor of science and technology at MIT, wrote for the LA Times. The Songs facility sits on an erosion-prone bluff two feet among, above the mean high tide. Seismic activity often occurs, and four tsunamis hit the region between 1812 and 1930. Geologists say the potential for another tsunami is elevated in the area, which has 8.4 million people living within a 50-mile radius. So really, one can't help but think of Fukushima. Um, and my understanding is Japan ignored the geologic evidence. So if a tsunami hit songs, um, what type of catastrophe would we would we encounter? Well, certainly the long overdue big one is something that 
we've been warned about for many decades now. When it does, the devastating effect will far exceed that of the ongoing Fukushima disaster, simply because of San Onofre's proximity to a very dense population. So much other infrastructure would also be destroyed that nuclear waste at San Onofre could only be protected by addressing this issue before the big one hits. We need to move the casters to higher ground, switch from thin casters to thick casks, and build a robust above-ground storage facility like they had at Fukushima. Those casks survived unscathed. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Other countries like Japan and Switzerland have set the example. We just need to do it before it's too late. A much less noticeable threat, I think, is gaining more attention now that the king tides and extreme weather conditions from climate change are becoming more apparent. With sea level rise comes groundwater level rise, which currently fluctuates near the bottom of the canisters. Capillary wicking action of moisture allows water to flow through the soil in all directions, including upwards. And by looking at the conditions of the tsunami wall, you can see the effect the ocean has had on metal and concrete. The tsunami wall at San Onofre has not aged well, and SCE is no longer able to count it as part of their defense in depth. If water eventually penetrates the canister, it's game over. Our goal is to get the California Coastal Commission to reevaluate sea level rise now instead of waiting till 2035, as stated as condition of the permit they approved. As a community organizer, um, what would you have us do to tackle this problem? Well, you know, I'd like to bring up the importance of whistleblowers who set the example for all of us to be brave enough to speak out when the wrongdoing is present. Three people in particular deserve our deepest gratitude. One was the manager at Songs who lost his job after complaining to his supervisors that his people feared retaliation from managed for reporting safety concerns. A little bit ironic, I'd say. Another alerted us to the fact that more testing needed to be done before starting up the new steam generators, which failed two years later and closed the plant permanently. During decommissioning, a canister was hanging by a quarter of an inch over an 18-foot drop into the concrete silo below. We would not have even known about it if the worker had not spoken up and made SCE accountable for their reckless behavior. In the absence of true regulation occurring on many fronts, if we see something, we all must say something, even when our livelihoods might depend on it. I'd also recommend that you sign our two petitions at sanclamanigreen.org become more familiar with the state of issues at San Onofre by watching the award-winning documentary, SOS, The San Onofre Syndrome, Nuclear Power's Legacy. It was a great 12-year synopsis on all the dialogue and actions between the scenes, which until now have been largely out of the public eye. You know, uh, you also have on your website um, a link to a very compelling, very short video of an engineer at San Onofre who speaks to the corrosion risk. So if you don't want to sit through um, an, uh, an entire documentary, I uh, would invite you to watch that short little video. It's about 10 minutes long. So, yeah, it's so important to stay informed. And like we've heard, it's so important that people, ordinary people like me get involved and take a stand because we have a long way to go. Well, thank you for talking about moving the waste out of there. We've also heard um, uh, our panelists talk about the importance of monitoring the waste. Um, I think what what uh, Samuel Lawrence Foundation plans on doing is um, launching a monitor and move campaign um, as a way of building public awareness of this issue. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Hedrick, for all you do and for joining us today. You're very welcome, and thank you. Bart, do we oh, have... Perry. Gary, you'll stay on. This is great. I just—it's—it's it's amazing what you have um, courageously uh, followed and persisted. Um, this, the first question is, um, well, well, Len's here. Len, how do other how do other military store and move their nuclear material, and and what's what's the holdup? Why why is this such a sloppy job by our local um, utility? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the regulatory process. Um, the military moves its materials completely different um, and 
turns it over to the Department of Energy so that it's handled for and then handled um, in a totally different fashion. I think what we're seeing here is that um, the regulatory commission um, or the utility the utility involved um, that basically hires um, an independent, in this case, in most cases, a company called Holtec um, to manage and uh, store. Um, a completely different process than uh, the way the military does uh, their handling. Admiral Herring, um, uh, at Songs we have high-level uh, nuclear waste. That that differs from the nuclear waste you would have in the Navy? Can you say that one more time? Um, the high-level nuclear waste that is currently being stored at Songs, does that, does that differ in intensity than the waste the Navy um, would store? Um, well, the, the Navy, again, the Department of Energy stores um, for the Navy um, its materials. Um, is it the same? Um, it is roughly the same um, from the nuclear reactors um, when they uh, repower those nuclear reactors. But the other material we're talking about is from nuclear weapons, and that's handled in a totally different fashion. So um, it's, it, it, it is different um, from what the um, the energy industry uh, utilizes and how. And really, uh, you know, the best person to answer how that's done, um, of course, would be our, our former leader. Uh, um, he knows all about uh, those processes. Thank you. Len, Greg had to leave, so we're, we're now four, five people. Um, so Do we have any participant questions? Bart, have any of them come in through the chat? Yeah, here's one. Here's one. Uh, when are the whole tech canisters at San Onofre expected to be leaking with their 25-year warranty? That is before a severe earthquake or tsunami. Who wants to take that one on? Yeah, I have some thoughts on that, Bart. Great. You know, I think the, um, the, the whole system the oops, sorry i'm fading away here the um the canisters i'm sorry i got distracted can you give me that question again the canisters at senofri expected uh to be leaking that's before yeah. the earthquake the tsunami and and you know i'm reminded by by uh Someone, some really knowledgeable person told me once that it's either going to be criticality if there's an earthquake, tsunami, terrorist attack, any, there could be any sort of number of, of problems that cause something just horrific for the 9 million people surrounding within 50 miles of the nuclear, of the nuclear storage site, the waste site. Or it can just become an ecological disaster in, in a thousand years or 10,000 years where, where the, 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 the waste becomes into the, so into the sand, into the sea, and becomes part of the ecosystem of Southern California. So the question is, um, how long will the whole tech canisters expected before? Yeah, they and that's that is the key question. How long will they last, and what will we do when they fail? And the idea that they will last twenty years is a presumption. We don't know. It's all experimental. We don't know if they'll last forty years or you know sixty. There's no way to unweld the canisters right now to see what the condition of the fuel is inside. So. I would rather ask the question, um, not how long will they last, but how soon could they fail? And, and Bart, if I can, that, that's, that's really the question, the largest question that everyone who's involved here continues to ask. And it is um, the whole issue on a thin wall canister and how many uh, or what, was, what has happened to those thin wall canisters in the process of movement. Um, are any of them scratch? Um, did they re receive a scratch? Um, and what? how deep is that scratch? Um, because the corrosion of that thin wall canister is totally dependent on the environment that it's subjected to. Mm -hmm. And if there is a significant scratch um, on any one of those canisters, um, the, the viability of them retaining their integrity is 
lesson, whatever, uh, corrosion matter, a corrosion example occurs. So again, it isn't, it isn't how, it's when. And that's where the risk factor really comes in when they say, well, the risk is minimal. Um, the risk is not minimal because it cannot be measured. And if it cannot be measured, then you have to assume that it can occur. And I think we have some photos of the actual scratching and corrosion, don't we? Yes, we do. And we have, we have evidence that shows that, um, again, they, they've attempted to show that those scratches are minimal. But the reality is, based upon the physicists and the scientists who have um, come to the aid of, of uh, you know, we who are trying to figure out how to get there from here, um, say that those tests are not relevant, and, and they do not, um, and cannot. And the industry itself has admitted that it does not know how to offload one of those canisters, um, but they would figure it out if it ever occurred. <laughs> Right. Admiral, may I ask you a question? You wrote a seminal paper called Nuclear Waste Problems paper with, with uh, let me see, with, uh, with Dr. English and Dr. Chakraborty. How many of those, how, much, how many of those canisters of 77 canisters that, that are now buried at the beach, how many of those are scratched or gouged? They don't know. And that's the, that's the whole point. Um, there is no there is no uh, perfected inspection um, criteria because in order to fully inspect the canister, they would have to, again, be lifted out or some device um, manufactured that would allow you to do that. Nobody knows how to do it. So we don't know how many. And, and as you've already heard, um, in the loading process, um, there is a very hard risk that those canisters were scratched as they slid down into their into their their uh, storage silo, um, completely different from what might have been designed had uh, NRC actually seen a working uh, variant of the the the, uh, the process, and they, which they did not. Gary, you want to uh, answer? You want to talk to that? Well, I think. A picture is worth a thousand words, as they say, and we have pictures of a scratch going the full length of the canister. There's a patch maybe four to five inches wide of obvious corrosion, and I'm sorry we can't share that with the audience, but um, I think it's so important for people to realize that when they do these inspections with a little robotic camera, they don't always show us the worst, and these two images were from... uh, 2019, I believe, and they're pr- provided by Edison, and that's alarming. So that's all I can say. Oh, wow. Um, you, you know, I just saw a whole bunch more questions from the audience. Uh, could, so, so um, Catherine, should I read some of these questions? Um, one more, Bart. We're, oh. we're at 1227. Maybe two more. Um, What's the what's the process for moving the nuclear waste from from these thin canisters to the to thick canisters or to any what's the what's the process of, of moving the waste from one canister to another? <clears throat> the, moving the canister from one to another? Yeah. That's been done in Switzerland and there's examples we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we need to operate in a environment that is no air, no water, but helium. And that will prevent a criticality event when you pull the fuel assemblies out of the thin canisters and operate mechanically, robotically to place them into the thick casks that have bolts and instrumentation inside uh, between two lids that will give you advanced warning if there's a problem. So... Uh, that's where we need to get quickly, and we need to do it with the most, you know, scientifically improved on top of whatever everyone else has designed. We, we need the best here, and it's a, it's a process that will take uh, time and the ultimate in, in you know, cred- credible processes. It, 
we're so far from that and we have a long ways to go, but we can get there because we have to. I, I just we, re- just, we just had a question come in and it's for Ms. Focus. Just a minute, Admiral, what? What you just identified is a perfect example of what the study has found out is that they're not prepared to do any of this. Who, who are not prepared? Industry, industry, NRC is not requiring any of this to be done prior to any of this happening. So they don't know. We can't, even if you found a place tomorrow to move the canisters, those canisters cannot be moved tomorrow to a consolidated facility because they're not approved by the Department of Transportation for, for movement. We, they would have to uploaded and put into a different container. And none of this is, pre- none of this is prepared. None has been. None of this has been prepared. Yeah, we 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 consolidated interim storage is really out of the question at this point. Um, let me. There's some other really important questions we won't be able to get to. Is there a legal route for public advocacy organizations to take force compliance and oversight on the waste removal, or do we need a top-down support like the congressman mentioned? And the other thing is, how long is Edison responsible for their waste? At some point, the federal government and taxpayers assume all the liability. Or has that point already been reached? The decommissioned fund will run out of funds before the waste is correctly disposed of. Do we have time for one more question, Catherine? I think, I think I'd like to address a question to Ms. Falkers. Okay. What are the effects of leaking radiation on thyroid health? Thyroid, thyroid health. And from what distance are those effects felt? Well, um, distance is difficult because it is as the wind blows if the, uh, iodine is released to the ga- to, in, in air as a gas. Um, it, so it could travel where the wind goes. Uh, thyroid is a big deal because that's the one isotope that they can't claim doesn't have health impacts because it does and it did after Chernobyl and that's sort of what brought about all of the questioning of what isotope goes where and how it impacts your health. Uh, Thyroid cancers, non-thyroid cancer diseases are also associated with impacts from radioactive iodine. And there are a number of different isotopes of radioactive iodine that lodge in your thyroid. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it can travel as far as the environment wants it to travel. Um, yeah. Well, we've covered a very important topic today. Um, do any of our guests have any parting comments? Any important question we neglected to ask? I would like to actually say one thing, and I think it's really important that people understand this. Um, Senator Joe Manchin Mm -hmm. made a, a point of saying that the NRC focuses too much on safety. And he did this very recently, and it's a political article. And the problem with that is when he says they focus too much on safety, really what he's saying as part of that is they focus too much on public and environmental health. And I think when we start talking about these technologies like nuclear or any other technology, but specifically nuclear, we need to start focusing and centering environmental health and public health as the driving force for doing what we're doing with energy sources, whether it's addressing climate crisis or anything else. And until we do that, we are going to be spinning our wheels. So that is what I would like to say. Thank you so much. Admiral, Admiral, is there anything you'd like to add at, at the closing? Uh, no, I just I thank everybody for attending. I do hope that, uh, as I said at the beginning, the people read the report um, so they understand the, the situation at hand. And then get involved. Um, make sure that individuals understand and, and know of what they're facing. Um, it is not... Um, it is not something that's going to solve itself without pressure. Um, and that pressure needs to come from the local community and the local citizens um, who expect something to be done um, for their own safety's sake. Wow. Admiral, on behalf of everyone, well, Catherine will do all the, the last thank yous, but thank you so much for taking, taking the time from Florida and um, Gary, it's just been just a, a pleasure to thanks, Cindy. If you, you know, I would like to just reiterate that this is a race against time. We want to know how 
how long these cancer will last and what are they going to do when they fail. And if the grassroots effort can benefit from anything, it's from looking at the SOS documentary that it's 12 years of compressed actions that you can learn a lot from and really understand the situation much better. Art, can we um, can we link up the report that Admiral Herring is referring to on the SLF website? Yeah, we'll put it on the home page and the landing page. Okay, good. Well, we are truly grateful, gentlemen, and Ms. Fokers, for your time. <clears throat> this really has been great. Um, we want to thank San Clemente Green. We want to thank Beyond Nuclear. We want to thank all of our participants and Brooklyn Story Lab. Um, who helped us produce this program. Um, this webinar and its transcript will be posted to our website at samuellawrencefoundation.org. Forward it to your friends and everybody who loves living here. Pray that uh, we can get dialogue going and a follow-up here, get, uh, get Southern California Edison um, to speak with us and maybe somebody from the NRC. We can get out of our echo chambers, learn something and dialogue so that we move towards a solution, just as Congressman Levin so wisely said. So thank you, everybody, and goodbye. Thanks for listening. Please tell us what you think in the form of a review and a five-star rating. We love hearing from our engaged podcast audience. Please spread the word and share these essential conversations for a better future. Subscribe so you won't miss an episode. The Samuel Lawrence Foundation has a mission to strengthen community connections to science and the arts. As financial sponsors, we coach and strengthen nonprofits to increase their presence in the community. We are unrelenting opponents of the nuclear waste storage near San Onofre State Beach. Learn more at www.samuellawrencefoundation.org. For video versions of this podcast, please subscribe to our Samuel Lawrence Foundation YouTube channel. Follow us on X and Instagram at SLF Community.